to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49, we are on the next to the last sermon in our year-long study through the book of Genesis. And, and you would be glad to know that we've been on task. The schedule I set up last November for our preaching, we've stayed on task even in the midst of a pandemic. And we are moving towards a conclusion, the end of chapter 50, next Sunday morning. But this morning, we're going to be at the end of chapter 49, the first half of chapter 50, particularly in our study through the life of Joseph. Now, I've mentioned before in our study, but it certainly bears repeating. One of the things that will help us in understanding the message of Genesis is the specific context into which it was written. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's servant Moses penned the book of Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, in fact. And they were written to the wandering nation of Israel after their exodus from Egyptian captivity. The nation of Israel had been under captivity for some 400 years. And he was writing to them that they might be informed of of some, some questions that were certainly rattling around in their minds. One question may have been, how did we ever come to be as a people in slavery and captivity and Egypt? Another question they may have had was, how did we become such a great people? I mean, they went into Egypt, some 70 people, and they came out some 2 million strong. Now, if you remember your way back in our study through the book of Genesis, we saw some answers to these questions, actually, in the promises and the covenant that God made with Abraham at the very beginning. Back in Genesis chapter 15, as God appeared to Abraham in this theophany of a flaming torch that passed between the halves of the sacrifices that Abraham had made, God declared something to Abraham that was quite telling and informative. Look at Genesis 15, verse 13, as God made this promise. He said this, know for certain that your offspring, Abraham, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So this story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis tells us just how that came to be, how they came to be in Egypt as a people. Well, God communicated another promise to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis. Notice what Genesis 12 verse 2 says. God says, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And now, 400 years later, the receivers of Moses' book of Genesis are learning just how they became a great nation in the land of Egypt. You see, it was through the matrix of Egypt, through the crucible of Egypt, that the very nation of Israel would be birthed. And now the original recipients of Genesis are hearing as Moses recounts the life of Joseph and understanding how these promises have been accomplished, they're learning something else. There was another promise, a third promise that God made to Abraham, not only of a great nation, not only of a a captivity of his offspring, but he made a promise of a land of a place they would possess. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. This property, this space known as Canaan would become the possession of Abraham's descendants. As of yet, they had none of it. They possessed none of it, but they walked by faith and not by sight. This will be very apparent in our text before us today. We'll pick up our reading in verse 29 of chapter 49 and read through verse 14 of chapter 50. 
The text will be on the screen as well. This is God's word. Hear it. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. This is Jacob speaking. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Verse 1 of chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, verse 8, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. A very, it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, this section in Genesis covering the death and the funeral of the patriarch Jacob, it is the longest such narrative of a funeral in all the Bible. It's incredible. Now, we might be tempted to look at chapter 50, and if you've read ahead, you know the end of chapter 50 has some very compelling truths for us, and we'll learn those next week. We might be tempted to just skip over this funeral service. I mean, how boring is a funeral anyway, right? And just go to the very next passage, but that would be a disservice to the text because we're going to learn some great truths this morning from this passage about the funeral of Jacob, Joseph and his brother's father, the least of which is not this. That amazingly, this camaraderie of brothers that once was so dysfunctional and had such dissension and disunity, they're now brought together in this event. In fact, notice how verse 12 of chapter 50 puts it. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan. 
I mean, the storyline of this family is one of lying, deceiving, conniving, manipulating, supplanting, sexual morality, genocide. And God has done a miraculous work. A family with such great dysfunction is now brought together in a point of unity to honor and reverence their father, which speaks a tremendous truth to us today. No matter how dysfunctional your family is, the grace of God can overcome that. God can bring unity where there is dysfunction. Well, from this death of their father, the patriarch Jacob, I want us to consider three other powerful truths that emerge from the text before us. If you'll follow along, here's the first one. Number one, I want us to consider the message to descendants. The message that Jacob is communicating to his descendants who would come after him as he makes this deathbed conversation with his sons. It occurs at the end of chapter 49, and the conversation centers on Jacob telling the boys, this is where I want you to bury me. This is where you are to inter my remains. He says, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. This was not in the land of Goshen. This was not in the land of Egypt where they presently lived. This was way up in the land of Canaan, some 400 miles away. He says, here's what I'm commanding you. You bury me in that cave. Now, let me ask you something. Here's something very practical. Do you know where you're going to be buried? No, I'm not a salesman for the local funeral home, but I'm just asking, have you made rearrangements? As a pastor, there's been a couple of occasions where I've had to very quickly walk with families through making arrangements because no prearrangements were were made. I'm thankful that my parents bought two funeral uh, cemetery plots decades ago because 10 years ago, we had to use one. My mother died 10 years ago, and she's buried there. And there's a gravestone, a headstone there that has her name on it. It has her date of birth, her date of death. It also has my dad's name on it, on this headstone. It has his date of birth, but not his expiration date because he's still alive and kicking. But he's going to be buried there one day, should the Lord tarry. I'm thankful they made those prearrangements. This communicates something to us. I find it interesting here. In the choice of where he has prearranged for him to be buried, he's not being buried beside his beloved wife, Rachel. Think about it. He loved Rachel. He worked 14 years for Rachel. If you'll remember in this story, Rachel died giving birth to Joseph's brother, Benjamin. And she was buried in, of all places, a place we celebrate this time of the year, Bethlehem. Well, Jacob does not say, bury me beside my beloved bride, Rachel. He says, instead, bury me beside Leah. Because listen, it's not about the wife that he loved the most. He was communicating something much more powerful by his desired burial site. In Jacob's instructions to his sons, he says, bury me in the cave that was owned by Ephraim the Hittite. Now, if you, again, if you've been with us in our study, months ago when we were in chapter 23, we studied about when Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, in fact, bought this cave. The occasion was the death of Sarah, the princess. She died. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham goes before the elders of the Hittites. They're, they're gathered at the city gate, and he has a specific plot of land in mind, a specific field that he wants to buy, and it is, in fact, owned by Ephron the Hittite. And he goes before the elders and he says to Ephron, I'd like to buy this piece of property from you. So what does Ephron say? Sure, you can buy my property. He says, it's for sale 
for 400 shekels of silver. Now, that may not mean much to you, but it's 10 times the value of that property. What did he expect? He expected Abraham to fully engage in some haggling, some negotiation. Are you kidding me? 400 shekels of silver? That's exorbitant price. I'll give you a tenth of that. How about 40 shekels of silver? But that's not what Abraham does. What does Abraham do? Sold 400 shekels of silver, and he meticulously counts out 400 pieces of silver. Why did he do that? Because he did not want there to be a doubt in anyone's mind. Abraham and his descendants owned this piece of property. It was obvious before all the elders of the Hittites, this land belonged to Abraham. He owned it lock, stock, and barrel. Now, why did Abraham purchase that cave? Was it just because it, was a, it would make a great tomb for Sarah? No, he was staking down his belief and his assurance of faith. His descendants would own all this land. This was just a postage stamp of all the territory that would come to belong to the descendants of Abraham. Though he had not yet acquired it, he believed by faith in the promises of God. And so the promised Abraham and Sarah were both buried in that tomb. Additionally, Abraham and Sarah's son of promise, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca, they too were buried in that tomb. And then Jacob's wife, Leah, was buried in that tomb. And now Jacob's saying, I'm going to be buried in that tomb. What was the message that he's communicating to his descendants? This final act of Jacob's life is communicating this. I believe the promises of God. God will give this land to our descendants. And I have to ask, what declaration are you making with your life? What statement are you declaring by the way you live? What an encouragement Jacob's final scene is for us today. Remember, Jacob is the deceiver. He's the manipulator, the conniver, the supplanter, the stealer of blessing, the grasper. And now after 17 years in Egypt, he's going out of this life with a true heart and full assurance of faith, which is why the last verse of chapter 49 is so compelling. Look at it again, verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What a way to go. He drew up his feet. I just imagine him going into this fetal position and breathing his last breath. I read an interesting account this week of a professor, Frederick Leahy, who passed away in 2006. He was the chair of systematic theology at the Reformed Theological Bible College and Seminary in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He was a prolific author who had published many books through Banner of Truth. And as the account goes, he was taking on the day of his death, it turned out to be, his last manuscript for his last book. He and his wife went for a walk to the post office. As they walked to the post office and they posted this manuscript to the publisher, they turned around and were making their way back home. And his wife said to him, dear, what book are you going to write next? Here was his response. Margaret, I think I've said all I have to say. And with a few hours, he was dead, gathered to his people. It's as if he knew he had nothing left to do for the kingdom but to die. What a wonderful way to go. What a wonderful way to live. Nothing left to say, nothing left to do, but depart and to be with Christ. And of course, the great apostle Paul 
in his last manuscript that he posted to his son in the faith, Timothy, he said something very similar. He said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. The great reformer Martin Luther was once asked, if you knew today was your last day on earth, what would you do? He replied, I would plant an apple tree. What? What's he saying by that? I would do something today that's quite normal that would bear fruit for those who would follow after me. This is exactly what Jacob is doing. He's saying, plant my body, not here in Goshen, not in the land of Egypt. You carry it back to the land of promise. Plant me there because that will bear the fruit of faith in those who will come after me. This is the message he's communicating to his descendants. Here's the second thing from the passage I want us to see. Number two, the mourning that takes place over the deceased. The mourning that takes place over the deceased. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 50, which depicts Joseph's immediate response once his father had passed. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph was likely too young to remember the death of his mother who died with his, in the childbirth of his younger brother. But now he's a man in his mid-50s. This is the first time a close death has touched him so nearly. Remember, Joseph had been separated from his father for some 20-plus years. He'd made his way back to Egypt, or to Egypt, and there for the last 17 years, They've been able to rekindle that relationship and make up for lost time, as it were. As for the last 17 years, as his father's been living in Egypt, Joseph's affection and love for his father was deep. And we see it in the way he responds at his death. He fell on his father's faith, face. He showers him with his tears, and he kisses the body of his dead father, one last time. Have you ever done that? Kissed a dead body? Have you ever held the hands of someone who's passed? You might cringe at the thought of kissing a corpse. It's a little morbid to us. It's uncomfortable to our modern sensibilities. Again, when my own mother passed 10 years ago, we knew her time of departure was near, and so Amy and I went down to Central Florida, and we were staying at my parents' home, and There was a knock on my door about 5 a.m. It was my dad. Troy? Yeah. Your mom just died. So I got up and walked to my parents' bedroom. And I fell on my mother's dead body. I held her hands. I wept over her. There's something about holding the hands of a corpse that cements in our minds the reality of death. Joseph kissed his dead father. When Joseph regains his composure, what does he do? He commands his physicians, his servants, the physicians, the text repeats it, to inter, to embalm, his father. 
Now, from archaeologists who study such things, we know quite a bit about the ancient embalming practices of Egypt some 4,000 years ago. The, the, the work of their embalming is quite infamous. King Tut, right? We, we understand about these mummies that have been mummified in Egyptian coffins. Interestingly, the Incan tribes in the mountains of the Andes Mountains of Peru have similar embalming practices thousands of years ago. In fact, one occasion when I was in Peru on a mission trip, I was able to visit a museum, and as morbid as it sounds, there were many of these mummies on display behind black cases, uh, glass cases I was able to go and observe. Quite fascinating. So we know a lot about the preservation and the embalming practices of ancient Egypt and others. But it's important to notice Joseph didn't command the priests of Egypt to embalm his father. See, that's who would normally do the embalming process. He didn't command those who deal with the dead bodies to do it. He commanded those who deal with alive bodies, physicians, to embalm his father. Why, why did he do that? Well, I think it's likely because the pagan priests of Egypt embalmed the deceased because of what they believed about that embalming. And Joseph didn't want there to be any indication, any inference, any presumption on anybody that the faith of Jacob had somehow syncretized with the pagan belief superstitions of Egypt. He had not succumbed to the cultural religious persuasions around him, but he had maintained legitimate worship of the one true God. You see, the Egyptian priests performed their embalming in such a way that they thought the way they embalmed the dead would somehow give them a better quality of life in the afterlife. Full superstition. So Joseph, instead of instructing the priest, instructs his servants, the physicians. And I think there's a lesson in this for us. It's quite easy for professing Christians to acquiesce, to concede to the secular culture around us. It's very easy for Christians to be concerned about those aspects of our faith which are unpalatable to the secular world. We see churches doing it all the time. Jettisoning the faith once delivered to the saints. He does not do that. Now, you may be asking the question, well, if he didn't believe in this superstition, why did he have them go through this lengthy embalming process and preservation of his father's body? Well, friends, it wasn't for any pagan, superstitious, religious reasons. The answer is actually quite practical, very utilitarian. So there was going to be a long time, a long interval between Jacob's death and his burial, his internment. The text tells us that Egypt mourned over Jacob for 70 days. Now, historians let us know that the, the standard length of mourning in ancient Egypt for a pharaoh, for a king, was 72 days. So they commanded mourning for Jacob, this Hebrew Semite, just two days less than they would for a king. It's obvious it's a response of gratitude and respect to his son Joseph, who quite literally saved the nation of Egypt from starvation because of his wise management during the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. So 70 days of mourning are declared in Egypt for the death of Jacob, and then they traveled from Goshen up to the land of Canaan through Sinai, which would have been probably a week by foot with their large herd of people, and then we saw in verse 10 of chapter 50, there was another seven days of mourning prescribed once they arrived in Canaan. So they needed to preserve exceptionally the body of Jacob. So there would be minimal decomposition on the way. 
But don't miss this. (laughs) During this lengthy interval between Jacob's death and his burial, there was great mourning in Egypt over him. That's fascinating. First, there was mourning by Joseph and his brothers and no doubt their families. And then the whole nation of Egypt mourned over him. In fact, the mourning of the Egyptians was so intense. Once they arrived in Canaan, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, they looked at him and say, oh my goodness, these guys are going crazy with their mourning. Notice what they said in verse 11. These are the inhabitants of Canaan. This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim, which translated means the mourning of Egypt (laughs) in Canaan, no less. So there's intense mourning over the departure of Jacob. We've seen the message to the descendants, the mourning over the deceased, but thirdly and finally, I want us to notice this, the mirror of the deliverance. This event mirrors something for us, and we'll discover what that is as we go through the passage. The text tells us that Joseph requested permission of Pharaoh to take his deceased father's remains to Canaan and bury him there. Pharaoh, in fact, gave that permission. In fact, dispatches an incredible caravan to accompany Joseph and his family and his brothers. It's a grand state funeral with incredible pomp and ceremony. The father of the man to whom Egypt owed literally their existence could not be buried as a commoner. So the funeral procession from Egypt to Canaan is made up of three distinct groups that are mentioned in the narrative. First of all, in verse 7, we read this. Look again. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his, Pharaoh's household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So this is who's accompanying Joseph at the front of the pack. All the elders, this is all the aristocracy, the uppity-ups, these are the people who would be featured in Egyptian, the Egyptian lifestyles of the rich and famous. These are the, the upper echelon people. They're in the begin, front of this ceremony. The second group, according to verse 8, is this, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. And I want you to imagine the contrast of these two groups that are leading this procession. First, you have the, the Egyptian aristocracy. These would have been dressed in fine white linen embroidered in scarlet with their gold medallions hanging from them that displayed who they were in society. Clean-shaven heads, clean-shaven faces. Behind them are these burlap sack-robed <laughs> Semites Long, scraggly beards walking along, these shepherds. And then there's a third group that the text describes, following behind them, a great military force. In verse 9, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Now, this military escort was sent, I think, for two reasons. One, because they were going so far outside the borders of Egypt they were escorting them to provide a level of protection and security for this massive caravan. But I think, secondly, these military officials were sent there as a means of ensuring that none of the descendants of Jacob had any thoughts or ideas about defecting from the land of Egypt. After all, the land of Egypt had become quite accustomed to the Hebrews and all the benefit they brought to Egypt, to their economy and their general way of life. What's also interesting is the route they traveled. There are some navigational markers in the text that let us know the route they traveled from Egypt to Canaan was not the direct route. 
It was not the way that traders would normally take. It was a very indirect route, not a way that you would typically go. Why did they do that? Why did they go such a long way around? Here's what's happening. God is overseeing all that's happening here. God is superintending every aspect of this processional. Who's involved and the very route they took to bury their father. You see, what's happening here is they are foreshadowing the exact route the nation of Israel would take 400 years later on their exodus. They're mirroring forth. They're prophesying and predicting. This is exactly where the nation of Israel is going to go when they leave Egypt in 400 years. There's several parallels in these two exoduses, the exodus of Jacob and his body from Egypt to Canaan and the exodus of his descendants 400 years later from Egypt to Canaan. First of all, Jacob, if you'll remember, was renamed something by God. What was it? Israel. Well, what's the nation called 400 years later? Israel, the nation of Jacob, the nation of Israel, is the ones who are delivered from Egypt. Further, at this time, Joseph takes Jacob's bones to Canaan. In 400 years, they will take Joseph's bones to Canaan. Additionally, you have words like flocks, herds, chariots, horsemen, very great company, all used to describe what's happening with the burial of Jacob. Those same exact descriptive words are used in the book of Exodus to describe the exodus of the people of God. Further, this exodus with Jacob's body is done with full knowledge of Pharaoh. In the same way, 400 years later, the exodus of the people of God is done with full knowledge of Pharaoh. You have the servants of Pharaoh, the military, the chariots, the horsemen. These would all be present in some form or fashion 400 years later in the exodus of the people of God. But these parallels are really contrasting to one another in a lot of ways. Just like with the exodus of uh, Jacob, here uh, you have this future Israel that Pharaoh is aware of their exodus, but he does not give his wholehearted approval. Instead, he gives hard-hearted disapproval. When you have the chariots and the horsemen appearing with Jacob's procession, they're there to provide protection and security. In the exodus in 400 years, they're there to try to conquer them, to attack them, to pursue them. And there will be another great contrasting parallel between these two processions out of Egypt to Canaan. It's this. Just like with the exodus of Jacob's body, there was great mourning in Egypt. 400 years later, there will be great mourning in Egypt. But that mourning will not be because a Hebrew patriarch has died. That mourning in Egypt will be because the firstborn of every household in Egypt has been killed. In fact, listen how the book of Exodus describes that morning, chapter 12, verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Jacob's exodus to Canaan is a foreshadowing in the future of the exodus of the people of Israel out of their bondage and captivity. God is saying with this caravan, with this funeral procession, I am the God over Israel. I am the God over the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will bring you out of bondage and captivity and will deliver you into the promised land. Well, after this long journey, they take together 
they finally arrive at the cave in the field of Machpelah. And there, the, this exodus of these reunified brothers, they bury their father's remains exactly where he commanded them, in the cave in Machpelah. Well, as we close, I want you to use your sanctified imagination. Just imagine this scene. As they come upon the cave and they find the location of the burial location, there's no doubt a huge stone in front of this cave over the mouth to seal it and protect the remains that are interred there. Several of the brothers come forward and they roll this stone out of the way. And for the first time in decades, the light shines into this tomb. And as these brothers peer inside, they see remains there of their great-grandfather and grandmother, Abraham and Sarah. They see the remains there of grandma and grandpa, Isaac and Rebekah. And half of these brothers, six of these boys, see the remains of their mama, Leah, in there. And they faithfully and reverently take the embalmed body of their father, Jacob, and they inter him into that tomb. And in so doing, they are declaring together their absolute confidence in the promises of God. We will possess this land. Following the burial, verse 14 says somewhat unceremoniously that Joseph and his brothers returned to Egypt. Those boys would never return to the land of Canaan. Their eyes would never see the promised land again. But they would remain faithful. I have no doubt as they journeyed back, the long journey back to Egypt, they had to dialogue and discuss all that God had done, all that God has promised, all that God would do. And particularly Joseph and Judah, they were especially faithful. And over the next 400 years of captivity, and bondage, and slavery, through great affliction and oppression, there would remain faithful believers in the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down until some unnamed Hebrew midwives were told by Pharaoh, you perform on every Hebrew baby boy, as it were, a partial birth abortion. You kill them when they come out of the womb. And they defied the command of Pharaoh. Faithful Hebrews believing the promises of God. And one of those baby boys we know was Moses, who would be risen up to be the deliverer of Israel. Today, as we look back at this exodus, we're reminded that through all the plagues that God brought on Pharaoh, his heart was hardened until that final plague, the plague of the death angel passing over every home. In any household that did not have the blood of a Passover lamb spread on the doorpost, they would experience the righteous justice of God. But to every home who had obeyed the command of the Lord and had painted over their doorposts the blood of the lamb they experienced the mercy of God from his righteous justice. And of course, all this is pointing down through the ages to the ultimate exodus, the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate Passover and great descendant of 
Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. In New Testament terminology, the man who had the equivalency of a PhD in Jewish history and theology, this great Pharisee known as Saul of Tarsus, he would come to know Christ as he'd be known to us as Paul the Apostle. Notice how he put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And those who come under the blood of that Passover lamb, those who trust in the work of Jesus as he was hung on a cross to die, our sacrificial Passover lamb can be assured they will experience mercy from God's certain justice. That great promise of deliverance is assured to us. We believe it. We know it's true. How do we know it's true? Here's how. In a similar way, that great stone was removed from the cave in Machpelah. 1,500 years later, there was another stone in front of another tomb in a garden tomb in Jerusalem. That stone was miraculously removed. And as the light shone into that tomb, unlike Joseph and his brothers, when they peered in, they saw the remains of their loved ones who had gone. When Peter and John peered in, they didn't see their departed loved one. All they saw when the light shone in that tomb was the folded up grave clothes. Why? Because Jesus is alive. How do we know the promises of God are true? How do we know we can trust in our great Passover lamb? Because Christ has risen from the dead. And we walk in that confidence. And we can live in full assurance of faith, even among a culture that is descending and descending. We believe the promises of God because Jesus is resurrected from the dead. This is our assurance of faith. He is alive. He's conquered death. And though death can be a fearful thing, friends, we don't have to fear death. If you trust a dead Savior, you'll end up just like him. But if you trust in a living Savior, friend, you'll end up just like him. And we trust in the living Savior of Jesus Christ. And I close this morning asking, do you know him? Have you come to trust in Jesus alone? I was thinking about it this morning as I walked in. It took a lot of work to decorate that tree. We have two trees in our home this year. It's taken Amy a lot of work to decorate those trees. How often we can apply that to our own lives. Oh, we just got to make sure we decorate everything appropriately to be accepted. There's no ornaments you can put on any tree in your life that will gain you acceptance with God. Only belief and trust in the work of Jesus alone. Death is a certainty, and you can be assured of life everlasting you can be assured there will be a glorious going home. That leads to my last thought. Death is the eventuality for all of us. Our only hope is to depend on the promise of God in Christ.